I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. I would like some cool stuff. It's been very warm lately. It's been so freaking warm. <laughs> Apparently, this is like the hottest summer for the past 150 years in Chicago. I believe it. That's what I've been saying all along. People are like, oh, I don't think it's that bad. I'm like, no, June was freaking nuts. <laughs> and it just hasn't stopped. And I'm sure that doesn't have any implications for greater trends. So let's move on to today's yeah. topic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have, from time to time over the course of this program, talked about a, a number of, of anarchists. Yeah. Sometimes in depth, some uh, more often just, just sort of glancing over their lives. This is going to be more the former. More of a glance? No, that would be the latter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we, we are going to talk about the lifetimes and, and alleged crimes of Nicola Sacco and uh, Bartolomeo Vanzetti. A pair of men executed for murders committed in the course of an armed robbery in what has become uh, perhaps the classic case of a biased trial. Oh. F from the tone of your... your uh, uh, My O? F from the tone of your O, <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I take it you're not uh, familiar. It, it doesn't ring a lot of bells, the name Sacco and Vanzetti. Uh-uh. Okay. I got, I got nothing right now. So before we talk about them, then, let, let's give some backstory to, to their ideology, their specific brand of anarchism, and talk about Luigi Galliani. Yeah. It's the year of Luigi. <laughs> Luigi Galliani was perhaps the most prominent Italian anarchist in early 20th century America. Uh, he became a strident anarchist uh, while he was studying uh, in law school. Hey! Uh, he traveled the world because he kept getting deported from places... Uh, pretty much anywhere he settled down, the, the cops came knocking. You know, that, that would force you to travel. Uh, his deportation from Switzerland in 1887 was for organizing a demonstration in support of the Haymarket Martyrs. Hey, we talked about them. There you go. There There is some anarchists that yeah. have been on the show. Yeah. You can listen to a whole episode about them. Uh, he organized a strike in New Jersey uh, during his period in the U.S. where he was shot by police and literally thrown over the border to Canada. Did they shoot him before they threw him or did they throw him and shoot like skeet? Well, they shot him in New Jersey and then they threw him into Canada. So I have to imagine they were separate days. Okay. Uh, and Skeet Ulrich has never had that happen to him. That was a movie. I was talking about like skeet <laughs> shooting. Okay. Where they, like, toss it, and you try to hit it. Uh, right? That's what that's called. That is what yeah. that's called. And the end of Scream is skeet stabbing. So our, our good friend Luigi uh, settled for a long period in Vermont. You know what Vermont has a lot of? What? Cheese? No. I'm not going to do Bing Crosby songs Why with you. Why not? So I'm trying to talk about Luigi Galliani. But he's in Vermont. And when he's in Vermont, he's editing Cronaca uh, Soversiva, which is Italian for Subversive Chronicle. Very aptly named. Okay. Uh, it was his anarchist newsletter. Uh, it ran for 15 years until it was shut down by the Sedition Act of 1918. Mm. It has what you would expect a, a, an anarchist uh, newsletter to have. You know, your, your usual attacks on state power. And those darn passive socialists for not recognizing uh, uh, more effective uh, tactics. Yeah. 
tactics that included uh, just distributing bomb recipes within its pages. Ah, yeah, you know, like you do. It's it's just a recipe catalog. That's all. And publishing the names and addresses of enemies of the people. Yeah, like you do. You know, mm-hmm. uh, factory owners that oppress their their uh, workers. Any manner of strike breaker, cops that try to track down and deport anarchists. Yeah. The, the judges that back them up in this, the enemies of the people. Of course. Uh, Galliani's big distinction, what, what really sets him apart, uh, was his focus on propaganda by the deed. This is an ideology that supports acts which demonstrate the state is not all-powerful, and then in turn incite revolutionary uh, action. Propaganda by the deed is often, but not necessarily, violent. You could say the the Black Panthers uh, uh, free breakfast program for school kids was propaganda by the deed. Okay. In in the case of, of Galliani and, and the Gallianisti, no, they meant violence. Like that was his thing. Yeah. Uh, he he was all about the bombings, the assassinations. Well, you know, when you're sending bomb recipes in your newsletter, I think you would be. Yeah, they they weren't scrambled egg recipes. No. Did he, like, try to disguise it? Was it, like, in code, or was it just straight up, like, here's how to make a bomb? Oh, it was definitely here's how to make a bomb. Like it? The recipes weren't accurate, which caused some trouble. Oh. <laughs> the things explode in people's faces. But but the, the thing that was hidden, if anything, was, was that was the way that the title was something about, like, health of the body or something like that. It, it, was, a, um, it was a metaphorical title. Oh, okay. Uh, that pamphlet wasn't called How to Make a Bomb. The, the Gallianists' biggest action, biggest uh, uh, alleged action, they are believed responsible for the Wall Street bombing of September 1920, uh, which at the time was the deadliest terror was the deadliest terrorist act in the United States, uh, and it held that that title for almost a full year until the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. Yep, almost, oh. almost. There was a wide campaign of many, many smaller bombings that are directly tied uh, to followers of, of Galliani uh, because they had a tendency to blow themselves up. Oh. Yeah. Like, like I said, the uh, uh, original printing of that pamphlet had some typos that were unfortunate. Was it, hang on to the bomb? <laughs> it, it, it was more like... Um, like a decimal place or a typo of a number in some oh, of the ratios okay. that made things a bit too volatile while they were still in your house. Okay, that's what I... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I assumed, but, you know, <laughs> maybe he meant to, like, set the fuse and run, but he wrote, set the fuse and stay. <laughs> Can't believe he didn't notice that. Oh! So, so with that little bit of background to what... Uh, uh, the act of anarchism meant, especially in the public imagination of 1920. Let's uh, talk about our, our friends Nicola and Bartolomeo, Sacco and Vanzetti. Those, those good buddies of mine. Those good buddies of mine. Uh, they, they were born in Italy uh, in, in separate villages. They, they immigrated uh, to America, both settling in the space between Boston and, and Cape Cod. A very small geographical area. <laughs> Uh, among the towns of Massachusetts, yes. The coastal towns. Plymouth-ish. By the time of the trial, Sacco uh, uh, made his living selling fish from a cart, wheeled it around uh, uh, the Italian neighborhoods around uh, the, the greater Plymouth area, and Vanzetti worked in a shoe factory in Slouton, one of those towns. Mm-hmm. 
They both became anarchists in America and first met one another, despite their, you know, parallel lives. They first met in anarchist meetings. Mm -hmm. Vanzetti became a fixture in the local area when they were arrested. Part of the literature they they had on them were flyers promoting a a meeting where Vanzetti was going to speak. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking about his conversion to you know the philosophy of anarchism, uh, he, he summed it up by saying, I saw people not living in America, but under America. They and you know the rest of, of the Gallianists uh, protested involvement in World War I. They, they did not support this uh, imperialist war between imperialist powers that would just crunch up all the working class of all nations. Mm-hmm. They were so against involvement of the war that they, uh, along with the rest of their circle, uh, fled to Mexico together to to, uh, found a commune and live together. Uh, Some say to avoid uh, conscription. Some say to, uh, um, you know, just not be involved in the work of empire. Some suggesting maybe maybe it was because uh, travel to Europe from Mexico was uh, uh, more secure than travel to Europe from America. In case any more uh, um, revolutions swept across the continent following uh, of the fall of the Tsar, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe. Yeah. all good reasons, you know. <laughs> so the, the the story proper begins on April fifteenth, nineteen twenty, at a shoe factory in Braintree, Massachusetts, when it was robbed. Uh, the factory's paymaster and his bodyguard were, were both shot dead by a pair of men who then left. Uh, uh, they got picked up by a car that had several other men in it in the getaway car, and they, they took the, the payroll cash boxes as they made their getaway. Mm-hmm. That's the crime. Uh, this robbery reminded police of a deadly attempted robbery of another shoe factory in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, the previous December. Mm-hmm. Every town I'm mentioning is in the greater Plymouth region, you know, southeast of Boston, but not all the way to the Cape. Okay. Yeah. In fact, Quincy, Massachusetts, where where we stayed for Uh a few days, Uh comes up. Best coffee shop. It's not in my um, uh, outline. Dream of that coffee. But somebody in this story's official address is in Quincy, Mass. I I just forget who. So that previous attempted robbery in Bridgewater, that that took place on Christmas Eve when a a car full of armed men tried to rob a car carrying that factory's payroll officer and cash box. They didn't get away with the money, but they did kill one of the employees in the car. Mm -hmm. So witnesses to the Braintree robbery, this brand new one in April, uh, described the robbers as Italian, and the car drove off to the west and the Department of Justice was cracking down on left radicals. We are in the middle of the Red Scare. Like I mentioned, there, there's been a revolution in Moscow. The, the old world is falling. And it's the, the before it is named domino theory, people are already afraid of it. Mm-hmm. So the, the chief of Bridgewater's police, uh, a man named Stewart, was looking for Italians who owned cars in the next village to the west. Wow, that's so descriptive. There can't be a lot of people like that. <laughs> so, you know, fo- following the uh, the profile, which is Italians, uh, he, he uh, checked up on local known anarchist uh, Ferruccio Quacci. He was packing a bag and, and looking to move back to Italy in a hurry. In fact, he was meant to be deported on April 15th. Uh-huh. So, like, yeah, a lot of people wanted him in Italy. <laughs> He was roommates with known car owner Mario Boda, 
Oh, those known car owners. Who would be suspected years, uh, who would be suspected next year uh, of committing that Wall Street bombing? Minority report. Uh, The car used in the Braintree robbery was actually stolen and found ditched in the woods two days after the robbery, which is the day after the chief of police found these guys. So still, we're still probably going to look for someone who owns a car though, right? Yeah, this did not deter Chief Stewart. A second car came to pick up the robbers from the getaway car. So we're still looking for somebody who has a car, naturally. Of course. Stewart was sure that uh, uh, when he saw Koachi packing up that trunk... That he was packing up the stolen cash. He wasn't. And that Boda's car was used to drive the gang away from the ditched getaway car. Indeterminate at best. Uh-huh. It was in the repair shop after allegedly not being driven for five months. Yeah. Which would include, you know, April 15th, two days earlier. So uh, Stewart had the owner of the, the uh, body shop call him to arrest whoever came to pick up the car when it was ready. Clearly this would be our gang. When the car was ready, Boda brought his friends, Sacco, Vanzetti, and a, a fourth man, Ricardo Orsiani, to collect his car. Like you do. On May, get your car. On May 5th. This took a lot of repair work, apparently. We're talking weeks here. Yeah. And you need your whole crew to come with you. <laughs> They're besties. Besties. And so, as requested, uh, uh, the mechanic, technically his wife, uh, called Chief Stewart. When this merry band uh, saw the police coming, they scattered. Orsiani uh, helped Boda escape. Boda, in fact, made his way to New York and eventually to Italy before he was ever arrested for anything. Uh Orsiani was picked up the very next day. Koachi, the person who put Stuart on the trail of Boda and his car and his car retrieval friends, Uh had already been deported for being a subversive under the Immigration Act of 1918. Deportation under that act was also, of course, a huge part of the Red Scare and and cracking down on on unwanted foreigners. Mm -hmm. So Sacco and Vanzetti were arrested on the 5th and brought in as suspicious characters and questioned about their politics. They were not questioned about what they were up to on the 15th, whether they robbed anybody, whether they shot anybody, or even informed they were being accused of murder. That seems like important details. They're very important details, especially when you're evaluating their answers to these questions. Yeah. Because the short version is they were asked questions and they lied. The long answer is people were getting deported for being uh, anarchists. That's probably what they thought they were brought in for because all the questions were, are you an anarchist? Do you know this known anarchist? No. There you go. Sacco had a son. His wife was pregnant. He didn't want to get deported. No. No, he didn't. So the theory, Chief Stewart's theory, was that this whole circle was the gang that did both jobs. Uh-huh. Uh, so Stewart started looking at who was where and when. Okay. That, that's the, the information he needs to, to put together a case. Koachi was at work at the time of both robberies, so he was not charged. They just let him go. Perfectly good alibi. Uh, Sako had the day off from his job at that third and separate shoe factory. A- apparently, this region of Massachusetts... Really into shoes. Just shoe capital of the world. Love their shoes. It's uh, shoe town. 
So he had the day off on April 15th, wouldn't you know. So he was charged with that robbery, but not the Christmas Eve robbery. He was at work on Christmas Eve. Vanzetti, as a guy with a fish cart, was essentially his own boss. You know, he didn't have time cards that, that were stamped that he could go check. So he's the guy that got charged with both. There could have been someone who remembered buying a fish from him. There could. There could be a lot of people who, who would testify to, to remembering buying fish from him. Keep that in mind. Yeah. On the other hand, the, the head of the Massachusetts State Police thought that they should be looking for professionals. You know, organized crime. Not shoemakers with pistols and leaflets. Oh, those leaflets. Uh, but Sacco and Vanzetti were officially charged the day they were arrested on uh, May 5th, 1920. Mm-hmm. Again, it took them, you know, a day or two to be told that. I bet they were very confused. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And you can see where uh, uh, the chief of police was coming from, because if the Galeanists had a problem with these shoe factories, they would not rob them. They would attempt to mail a bomb to the factory owner and blow themselves up instead in the process. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. (laughs) So Vanzetti went on trial first, alone, for the December 24th attempted robbery and and, uh, a murder of the Bridgewater payroll truck. Mm-hmm. Judge Thayer presiding. Thayer was a vocal part of the Red Hunt. He, he gave public speeches about the threat of Bolshevism and anarchism. He was known to, to be especially tough on immigrants and, and, and just looking for ways to throw the book at them. He was also known uh, uh, as a very fair judge. This is what counted as a reputation for fairness in 1920. Uh-huh. The Red Scare was real continues to be real. Uh-huh. Uh, the center of Vanzetti's defense was that he spent all day December 24th selling eels to the Italians of, of the, the Plymouth region for their traditional Christmas recipes. Uh-huh. I did not know this about traditional Italian cooking, that there is an eel meal for Christmas. I didn't know that Massachusetts was big in eels. There's an ocean. They got everything in there. I didn't know it was an eel region. I knew it was a jellyfish region. Found that out when I was there. <laughs> didn't know about the eels. At least one horseshoe crab. Saw one of those. <laughs> I touched it. Don't touch it. I saved it. <laughs> yes, I just you was did. like, there you go, little buddy. You're good now. I uh, scampered away. 16 of these customers and one assistant he had helping sell the eels uh, took the stand to testify... That's where he was, you know, not shooting people in in cars. Mm -hmm. All were Italian. Many spoke Italian uh, exclusively. uh, And so they had to testify through an interpreter who happened to speak a different dialect from them, causing difficulties of understanding on the stand. Uh, The prosecution relied on eyewitnesses as well to the crime and the fact that Vanzetti was carrying shotgun shells when he was arrested, you know, five months later. Uh Uh-huh. There was a lot of deliberation in this case over whether Vanzetti's mustache in December was as long as it was in May. He, yeah. had, he had an incredibly distinctive mustache. Like, yeah. it was practically below his chin, this mustache. Ugh. How do you uh, eat with that? Not a lot of soup, one would have to imagine. Uh, see, see, eyewitnesses to the robbery did not agree to the length of the mustache of the robber they saw. Oh, it's a different time. I guess the mustache <laughs> would be like the the facial hair of the time would really be the descriptive factor, wouldn't it? It was a real push broom of, of a thing. Bartolomeo Vanzetti was found guilty uh, and sentenced to 15 years uh, on the very first arrest of his life 
for attempted robbery. This is a more severe sentence than a career attempted robber might get for attempted robbery at the time in Massachusetts. Uh, He was also found guilty of murder, by the way, but Judge Thayer declared a mistrial on that particular charge because the jury tampered with the shotgun shells that had been taken into evidence. Uh So now that that trial is out of the way, uh, and in fact used to bolster the prosecution's case for the, the... main event, the Braintree robbery, it is time to have the trial for the Braintree robbery. Judge Thayer uh, specifically requested to hear this case as well, and that request was granted. Thayer's back, baby. (laughs) Vanzetti wasn't a fan of his previous representation, uh, so the anarchist movement got got together, raised some funds, and hired Fred Moore to take the case. Uh Uh, Moore was hired by the newly formed Sacco Vanzetti Defense Committee, Because, of course, anarchists love committees. Yes. Committees and newsletters. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't don't know whether his first lawyer could have done anything more in in that previous case, but it is a fact that he was then hired by the prosecutor's law firm a few years later. I don't know. That could mean anything. It could mean nothing. I don't know. I don't know. Moore, this new lawyer for the case, uh, was from California. Not actually a member of the Massachusetts Bar, but, you know, approved to represent them anyway. Uh, and had immediate friction with Judge Thayer's uptight New England court. They did not see eye to eye. They did not get along well at all. Uh-huh. His strategy was to politicize the trial and to establish that anarchists would never get a fair hearing in a United States court. Uh-huh. He was not alone in this. The prosecutor uh, uh, did the same. Although in order to take advantage of that fact rather than to prove that fact. Yeah. Like the, the line of questioning uh, about them evading the draft in Mexico and challenging if they really love this country. And if you love this country, why would you abandon, why would you abandon her in her time of need? Because you don't want to die. Because you don't want to kill the working men of Germany. You've worked alongside the working men of Germany. They're cool. That too. If you could promise I would only be shooting the Kaiser, I might consider it. Uh-huh. Every day that the defendants were led in and out uh, uh, under armed guard uh, uh, in iron manacles. Uh, the defendant's box at the time was this, this big, like, iron cage, essentially. Mm-hmm. Evidence presented by the prosecution was split between eyewitnesses and trying to, to uh, match the rounds recovered to guns that were found in, in the defendant's possession. Mm-hmm. The closest eyewitness, like the, the person closest to, you know, the, the robbers in terms of, you know, feet and inches, was the guard in, in the little guardhouse with the arm that goes up and down over the driveway. Oh. <laughs> Whatever that's called. Uh, and he, you know, opened the arm for the getaway car to get away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was sure that Vanzetti was the driver. Bartolomeo Vanzetti did not know how to drive. You know, that's kind of a problem. <laughs> Two witnesses said they saw uh, Sacco firing from the moving getaway car. They saw this while it was at speed, while they were 60 to 80 feet away. Yeah. They were absolutely certain that that this man they saw was the man they saw for about two seconds or so. Yes. If you're wondering what 80 feet is, go up to the eighth floor in a building and look down to the street level. Just rule of thumb. If everything's standing still... (laughs) Yeah, you could know. Mm-hmm. If you know who the person is down there. Things moving, they fucking liars. 
they were absolutely confident and, and sure and and uh, certain on the stand. However, if you look at their deposition, uh, the, their original questioning on record and, and the deposition to the grand jury, uh, they're much less certain. Talking more about resemblances and sort of the type and uh, until they are badgered in the record into saying they are certain. Mm-hmm. What, what a difference, you know, a year makes. Yeah. Uh, One prosecution witness said uh, Sacco had pointed a gun at him from the car. Four other witnesses in the factory uh, said that when when the shooting began, he went inside. One said he even hid under the bench. Uh, Some said, oh yeah, he told me he never saw a thing. Uh, This witness had previously been found guilty of perjury. That was the charge he, he was found guilty of. Now, the major physical evidence against Vanzetti was that the dead guard's body did not have a, a revolver in its, you know, holster. Mm-hmm. The, the guard was known to have had a thirty-eight caliber revolver, didn't have it at the scene. Uh, Vanzetti did have a thirty-eight uh, caliber revolver from the same manufacturer when he was arrested two weeks after the, the robbery. Mm-hmm. It was a very popular model. There were thousands in circulation. Yeah. Beyond that, the serial numbers did not match. See, okay, so that's kind of a, a, you know, important thing. It is a pretty important fact. It's a pretty important fact that did not come up in court. It's a pretty important fact that prosecutors knew about and suppressed. Uh Uh-huh. Nobody knew this important fact, aside from the prosecutors that that covered it up, until the 1970s. This ain't looking good for our friends. (laughs) The the physical evidence that the prosecution had to tie uh, Sacco to the crime were the bullets themselves. The, the bullets that killed the, the uh, bodyguard of the payroll master, a man named Berardelli. Mm-hmm. The field of forensic ballistics would not begin in earnest for another five years with the invention of the comparison microscope. Uh-huh. But they did their darndest. Yeah. They sure tried, bless them. Uh, four bullets were recovered from the body. Only one of them was tested. Like, it, it all revolved around the one they called bullet number three as the prosecution claimed that that was the, the deadly one, the one what did the killing. Mm-hmm. Were it not for bullet number three, the uh, Berardelli may well have survived. An expert for the prosecution said that uh, uh, bullet number three was consistent with bullets test-fired from Sacco's gun. Meanwhile, the defense presented their own expert witnesses that said, no, it's not. Yeah. It's just, just a matter of uh, um, who you're going to believe, I suppose. Once again, let's jump forward to um, many more years of testing and scrutiny and, and uncovering lost information uh-huh. for the benefit of hindsight. Uh-huh. We know that the tested bullet, bullet number three presented in court, was indeed fired from Sako's gun. Okay. We also know that the other three, bullets one, two, and four, were not. Oh. We also know that witnesses saw one person fire four times into Berardelli, or at least that's what they testified to. We know that the medical examiner was of the opinion that all four uh, bullets had been fired, you know, in one firing session, you know, f- coming from the same angle uh-huh. from one shooter. Uh, we also know that the, the chain of custody of the recovered bullets and shells is in question due to conflicting testimony. Oh. Is this a case of those eyewitnesses being wrong and the medical examiner being mistaken? Is this a case of evidence tampering? I do not know. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Much like his solo act, the previous trial, uh, Vanzetti had 
customers on his behalf talk about how they remember very clearly. Yep, April 15th, uh, Vanzetti was, was wheeling his cart around. I bought some fish from him. Wouldn't have been eels. It wasn't a holiday. It was the, the catch of the day. Okay. Sacco, in turn, uh, uh, had a sworn deposition presented uh, on his behalf from uh, a, a worker at the Italian consulate who claimed uh, he was helping him file for a passport. Uh, Sacco wanted a, a, a passport to return to Italy because his mother was very ill. Mm-hmm. That's why he was in Boston that day. Yeah. Uh, the census worker, by the time of the trial, was likewise in Italy. That's why he was represented by a, disp- uh, by a deposition, not his own presence. Ah. The deposition was thrown out of evidence. Oh. Sacco did have some friends who uh, testified that he had lunch with them in Boston's North End the, the day of the 15th while he was in the city going to the consulate for, for that business, mm-hmm. which would explain why he had the day off from the shoe factory. Yeah. If you're going to commit a crime, you don't take a day off. <laughs> it's one thing if you don't show up to work when you're committing a crime. It's another thing if, Vacation you, day. if you just go to your boss in advance and like, hey, I'm not going to be around Thursday. Don't ask me why. Going to be busy doing stuff. This case is so strange because, like, why didn't the defense wonder about the other three bullets taken out of the body? Yeah. Did nobody think to ask where the thousands of dollars went? None of these guys bought a new car. The car that they're tied to (laughs) took like two, three weeks to repair. It's a bad car. Yeah. And that dude wasn't packing the cash, so... (laughs) So many questions that that never came up, apparently. Uh, But even so, after three hours of deliberation, deliberating over evidence that was questionable in the trial and now known to be fraudulent in many cases, Yeah, the jury returned guilty verdicts, which carried death sentences. The Wall Street bombing uh, uh, was a few days later, coincidentally or not. Mm -hmm. And with that, we're going to take a break. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. Uh, so, where we left off, we've got these two guys. Yeah. Committed anarchists. Uh-huh. Believers in a, a leaderless and classless society. Yep. That the, the problem is not uh, any single small thing or structure, but the, the nature of power itself being infested without uh, the consent of others. Uh-huh. We would all be better off, have a much more just world without the relations of worker to boss or citizen to police and government. It's all one big interrelated thing that, that separates the powerful few from the powerless many yeah. and allows the few to exploit the many. Mm-hmm. Not only that, they're, they're part of a circle of anarchists that, that believes in direct action and violent direct action, including the use of bombs. Yeah. Though they themselves are not accused of bombs. No. They are accused of a robbery that included shooting two guys. Yes. Accused and found guilty. That's right. That's, that's what you said. That's exactly where we find ourselves. Uh, uh, d- despite Moore's attempts to, to uh, turn this into a media trial, uh, it didn't really take off that much 
while the trial was happening, at least outside uh, uh, the greater Plymouth regions of, of Massachusetts. The New York Times started to, to cover the trial just when it ended with an article on page three uh, saying that the trial was entirely fair and correctly decided and that uh, if the radicals of Europe want to complain, well, that just shows they're upset that communists are not above the law here. Mm-hmm. This is when appeals and, and legal challenges to the, the uh, uh, verdict began. Judge Thayer was in charge of evaluating their merit. Oh, of course. Essentially a conflict of interest. If, if any challenge against the proceedings were found to have merit, he would be saying he screwed up. Yes. You know, kind of a problem. Ki- kind of a problem. Seems to be a trend here. Kind of a problem. Also, Judge Thayer being in charge of everything. Kind of a problem. So the first appeal was based on jury bias once it became public that during the trial, uh, the jury foreman was having a conversation with somebody and that guy said, you know, they thought the two might possibly be innocent. And the, the uh, foreman replied, they ought to hang them anyway. Oh. That's the sort of thing you might try to get an appeal for. Yeah. Uh, more appeals were filed each time a, a prosecution witness changed or recanted their testimony. Mm-hmm. Happened a lot of times, actually. Yeah. They, they were all shut down. One time, uh, attending a college football game, Judge Thayer, uh, just making conversation with a friend, said, Did you see what I did to those anarchist bastards yesterday? That should hold them down for a while. Oof. Referring to, to turning down, like, five motions in a single day. Yeah. Uh, Moore was fired by the uh, Sacco Vanzetti Defense Committee for trying to find the real killers. Mm-hmm. That's not what the committee was after. They, they were ideologically opposed to doing the state's job for it. Mm-hmm. We, we want to defend uh, uh, these two, yes, but that doesn't make us cops. Don't, don't do cop shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead, the committee had become a propaganda machine, filling labor and anarchist circles with pamphlets, always pamphlets, more pamphlets all the time, pamphlets and committees, uh, about the case and the greater threat of the state cracking down. Look what could happen. All, all the theory, all, all the, the rhetoric, here it is in practice. The state is taking political prisoners and calling them criminal prisoners Though the charges are ridiculous. Uh-huh. The, the biggest possible break in the case came in 1925 when uh, uh, one of the men received a note from uh, someone in a different cell in the same prison, Celestino Medeiros. Uh, he was awaiting trial for murder as well when he confessed to the Braintree robbery. Oh! Medeiros was a member of the Morelli gang from Providence, R- Rhode Island. Uh-huh. M- much like the uh, uh, Massachusetts uh, uh, state police guy's theory, we're looking for organized crime people. Yeah. The kind that do robberies. Yeah. Uh, the Morelli gang, in fact, was known for robbing shoe factories. Because apparently there are so many. So many freaking shoe factories! That's a niche you can have, is shoe factories. <laughs> shoe factories! But also murders. They did murders, the, the Morelli gang. Murders and shoe factories. The head of the Morelli gang, Joe Morelli, happened to look a lot like Nicola Sacco. Oh. Like, especially if you're 80 feet away and he's going around 15 to 20 miles per hour. 
Did shoe factories, like, pay a high wage or something compared to other places? Is that why they were such, like, a hot target? Maybe I'm, I'm uh, uh, overestimating the size and capacity of shoe factories circa 1920. <laughs> yeah, that could be it. They, you know, you need more shoemakers because you can't, like, produce as many. Where was Jumanji set? Because that starts in a shoe factory. <laughs> That's t- I'm going to look this up. It's in New Hampshire. New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Okay, New England, full of shoe factories. New- lots of shoes over there. You know what they say about New Englanders? They love to wear shoes. What? But that back to uh, Celestino Medeiros. Yes. Uh, while he was, you know, confessing to this case, he shared facts about the case that that uh, allegedly, at least, were not public knowledge. Were not part of the the media coverage or presented in the trial. Like the fact that there were two cars. Not only that, there was a, a stolen car used as the getaway, and that there was a switch. But he knew exactly where that car was ditched and the switch was made. Aha. Uh-huh. Joe Morelli's brother, you know, the, the brother of the gang leader in question, also confessed to the Braintree robbery decades later. Ah. Uh-huh. Two members of this gang said the gang did it. Yeah. They could be lying. They could not be lying. I don't know. Uh, but it's the sort of thing that you might uh, uh, get granted an appeal over, shall we say. Uh, the possibility of, of entirely exonerating new evidence. Yeah. Judge Thayer disagreed. He denied the motion for an appeal. <sighs> but at this point, the the uh, uh, publicity of the, the just legal runaround that, that Sacco and Vanzetti were getting was starting to gain traction. Uh, the, the Boston Herald published an editorial in support of a new trial, uh, an editorial that admitted they were wrong to consider this such an open and shut case. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Sacco and Vanzetti never granted an appeal. Medeiros was never tried regarding this case. In his decision, Thayer wrote, quote, It is not imperative that a new trial be granted, even though evidence is newly discovered and, if presented to a jury, would justify a different verdict. What, what would yeah. uh, make a new trial imperative? Yeah, I got questions. So th- this was really the start of mainstream support growing. Little by little, and and with with what would seem like patent unfairness to the outside world, uh, it started growing more and more. Another moment in in this uh, uh, shift in popular attitude was when Thayer's Bastards quote came to light in 1927. Mm. As the years go on, you you don't only have the labor movement, you you don't just have other uh, uh, union leaders and radicals. Uh, but you have prominent figures like Einstein, H.G. Wells, and George Bernard Shaw writing letters and signing petitions and saying, at least give them a fairer trial. Yeah. If not necessarily grabbing on, like, this is obviously a frame job. These men are innocent. At least retry the evidence. Yeah. M- maybe a jury that isn't uh, intending to hang them regardless. Like, let's just do this again. And if you come to the same conclusion... <laughs> We'll talk. Uh, the governor responded to this upswelling of, of support by forming a blue ribbon commission of upstanding citizens to look through the evidence. Oh, no. Surely these three captains of industry, the, these very notable men, will, will uh, uh, come to the honorable conclusion. No. Never mind that this is diametrically opposed to the, the uh, defendant's ideology. Yeah. Their claim is that... Uh, uh, 
you don't. these university presidents and and uh, uh, ex judges would act in the uh, interest of the system that creates university presidents and, and retired judges. Yeah, that's not who you would be asking for your opinion for a fair thing. That opinion was shared by Haywood Brown for the New York World, who wrote uh, in a column, quote, It is not every prisoner who has a president of Harvard University throw on the switch for him. If this is a lynching, at least the fish peddler and his friend the factory hand may take unction to their souls that they would die at the hands of men in dinner jackets or academic gowns. What the fuck? <laughs> That's supposed to be comforting? No, it's critical. It's critical of the, the Blue Ribbon Commission. Oh, okay. That's the critical part. I thought that was like... <laughs> it's it's biting irony. Okay. I missed that part, and I thought someone was being, like, <laughs> f***ing serious here. That, like, oh, yeah, this is great! So, so meanwhile, as this, this cycle continued, uh, the accused spent nearly seven years in prison. Uh, Vanzetti became uh, fluent in English. His poet's heart was no longer shackled by uh, imperfect grammar by the end of a sentence. Mm -hmm. Imperfect English grammar, that is. Uh, Sacco played catch with his young son over the wall of the prison yard sometimes. That is really sad. Got, got to watch his second child grow from, from infancy to, to becoming a, a, a young kid Oof. that, you know, he, he never, that he could not be present for the birth of because he was in prison. Oof. Uh, they both wrote many letters to have some contact with, with the outside world. Uh, they both spent some time in mental institutions during their imprisonment. It was rough on them. Yeah. After all of these delays, uh, the men were executed on August 23rd, 1927. Uh, this episode comes out very, very near the anniversary. Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, the, the IWW, the, the Wobblies, called for a general strike in response. The Colorado coal miners answered, uh, striking with uh, the, the international workers of the world rather than their company unions. Uh, the miners won a dollar a day increase in wages and union recognition in some of the mines, which was the biggest wins in 60 years of Colorado coal mining. Oh. Uh, every inhabited continent saw demonstrations against the execution. Uh, Medeiros was also executed that day, uh, August 23rd. Uh, in fact, he went first of the three for a separate murder charge. Mm-hmm. On his last day on Earth, uh, Sacco wrote one last letter to his son Dante. Uh, quote, Remember always, Dante, help the weak ones that cry for help. Help the persecuted and the victim, because they are your better friends. Yep. Yep. Uh, <laughs> his last words were, long live anarchy. Bartolomeo's final words uh, started with an admission that... Uh, he had never committed any crime, though he had committed sins in his life, never any crime. Mm -hmm. uh, and finished with, I wish to forgive some people for what they are now doing to me. Only some. It's... Not all of you. You and you. <laughs> you. Like, dude was a writer. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> 10,000 mourners followed their bodies through the streets of Boston to, to their funeral. Uh, while strikers closed factories in South America and demonstrators were beaten by police in Europe. Our friend William Hayes of the MPPDA, uh, then named MPPDA at least, ordered all film of the funeral procession be destroyed. Of course he did. 
He was not successful. Some uh, film survives. Take that, dude. But he tried. <laughs> Both of their cremains were then sent to their families in Italy and, and lie in their hometowns. Uh, on the 50th anniversary of their execution, then Massachusetts Governor uh, uh, Dukakis proclaimed the men were unfairly tried. In response, uh, the, the Massachusetts Senate took up a vote to censure him, which did not pass. Uh-huh. One in three Massachusetts senators uh, decided that was a censure-worthy act. Huh. Now, Vanzetti and, and Nicola Sacco have inspired more art and tributes than perhaps anyone, at least any 20th century figure. Yeah. 20th century figures who had no formal power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Within that wedge, they are serious contenders. Like, we, we got plenty of books, uh, you know, nonfiction, obviously, historical fiction that is about them or about fictionalized versions or has their their trial or execution in the background. Uh, um, countless paintings, landmark poems, uh, the, the famous song Here's to You by the recently passed Ennio Morricone, sung by Joan Baez. Mm. Uh, a, an entire Woody Guthrie song cycle that he did not finish, but there's a few of them in there. Yeah. They're in a Rage Against the Machine music video. Oh. Like, Sacco and Vanzetti are everywhere, including uh, the Sacco and Vanzetti Centuria, a, a uh, military unit of American anarchist volunteers in the Spanish Civil War. Sacco and Vanzetti, huge, huge footprint uh, in, in their martyrdom. Yeah. We don't know what happened in Braintree uh, on April 15th, 1920. No. It is possible both men were entirely innocent. Perhaps the Morelli gang or, or someone else committed the crime. It is possible, though I would say much less likely, that they were both guilty. And all this fabricated evidence, all, all this uh, uh, clearly biased uh, action by the, the court system happened to catch the real killers all the same. Uh-huh. It may be that Sacco killed the guard, just like the, the bullet analysis said, and Vanzetti was miles away entirely uninvolved. I don't know. But what is certain is that the justice system of Massachusetts was manipulated to hold political prisoners under the justification that they were actually criminal prisoners. Yeah. And as much as, as we don't like to admit it, as much as we don't like to say it, and would prefer to justify it in just such a way... The United States does keep political prisoners. Oh, yeah. Just look at the, the continued legal harassment and the prison torture of Chelsea Manning mm-hmm. that she received rather than the whistleblower protections to which she is entitled. Yeah. So, darling, what have you learned? I have learned about these two men uh-huh. that I knew nothing about <laughs> at all. I would wager you've heard here's to you. Yes. <laughs> I I feel I feel like this should have been a part of our um like Massachusetts tour though. <laughs> How did this not come up? I mean, the the history of anarchism, especially the persecution of anarchists. Like if you're going to learn about anarchism in schools, you're going to learn about letter bombs being sent to people and the times that they actually blew up the people they were meant to blow up. I'm I'm just thinking I want an underground walking tour. Mhm. Like of this. But, you know, the actual philosophy of anarchism and that it's not just something for 15-year-olds 
that there, that there is a long and and rigorous philosophical history. Mm-hmm. The the amount of positive work they do in this country and many 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 others besides. Yeah. Uh, it's like the the tragedy of Darth Plagueis the Wise. It, it's not a story the public school system would tell you. There's a lot of stories the public school system <laughs> won't tell you. But uh, th- this episode was inspired about a month ago when both candidates currently res- running for president of the United States stated that arsonists and anarchists should be prosecuted in the same breath. And And this is at a time when... Look out your windows, people. Uh, Anarchists are providing food, water, and above all, medical care uh, to those in direct actions against state violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anarchists are in the streets today providing shields, not throwing bombs. Mm -hmm. Shields that that are built out of, like, plastic tub lids to protect the abused from impact munitions and chemical weapons that the state has turned against its people. Uh Uh-huh. Personally, I'm also fine with arson depending on what you're building da- depending on what you're burning down. I get that not everybody's on the same page with that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I cannot understand people who want to outlaw an ideology about dismantling power and ensuring the common good by eliminating the means which would prevent the common good. Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand criminalizing people who defend their lives from persecution and violence for their ideology and supporting the inherently coercive and abusive institution of the police in its place. Yeah. So that's what I learned. <laughs> or at least what I wanted to say. Yeah. Yeah. So the thought you wanted ever to leave everyone with. Yeah, you, you can tell... When, when it goes from bullet point uh, um, outline to actual paragraph. <laughs> so that we're going to take one more break and be back with your letters. Letters! If you did come back. That sounds very sinister. (laughs) We have letters for you. Uh, Isaac writes in and wishes you a happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Uh, And uh, hopes you enjoyed the mandatory cake. (laughs) It was actually a very good cake. We have never bought a cake from our grocery store. And that was a damn good cake. You're welcome. And also thank you, both at the same time. Yeah. And and, uh, Isaac is also... uh, I assume enjoying last shooting. They have it open. so <laughs> It doesn't take that long to read, frankly. Uh, in answer to uh, the prompt this week of uh, favorite anarchists, yeah. uh, Isaac is going with the song Teenage Anarchist by Against Me. That's the thing with the song. You can't arrest it. Yeah. 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 Think about it. Thanks, Isaac. <laughs> Final Gamer writes in with two uh, uh, answers to the prompt. The first is Louis Ling, show favorite. Yeah. In fact, our Haymarket episode is why Final Gamer is familiar and enamored with the life and, and times and of Louis Ling. Who is it? I mean, come on. You gotta respect someone who's like, I couldn't have been blowing that up. I was at home making bombs. Anarchists love bombs. At least they used to. Now they like medical supplies. Yeah. And bats. Send bats. Yeah. 
But Final Gamer also talks about the Countess Markowitz, or Constance Georgine Markowitz, a founding member of the Irish Citizen Army, uh, which formed out of the labor movement. Now, she, she may not strictly be an anarchist, but she, but she was a socialist revolutionary suffragette uh, who did take part in an anti-government uprising. So she probably had friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was jailed in 1911 uh, for, for protesting against King George V, acts that included uh, attempting to burn the British flag. Uh, she organized a soup kitchen in 1913 during the Dublin lockout, uh, as well as defending protesters from the police. She fought in the Easter Uprising, where she uh, helped construct the barricades, uh, kill an unarmed police officer, and wound a British Army sniper to defend the barricades. Her, her death sentence was lessened to life in prison as a, as a mercy, you know, a, as a woman, to which she replied, I do wish your lot had the decency to shoot me. Oh, boy. That might only be her, her second best quote. Uh, the, the best might be her fashion advice to, to uh, girls and young women. Dress suitably in short skirts and strong boots, leave your jewels in the bank, and buy a revolver. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Final Gamer. Uh, so Great Joe wrote in. The cousin of Great Scott, I believe. Yeah, and uh, told us about their favorite local oddity, and that is the Icelandic... Phallological Museum. You know what that is? It's a penis museum. It's a penis museum. It. We tried to get our friend to go there when they went to Iceland. We were like, you have to go! And they're like, no, we're gonna see waterfalls and stuff. We're like, no, penis museum. They're not mutually exclusive. You can go to the penis museum. They didn't. They didn't. And it is my great disappointment of their entire honeymoon <laughs> that I had nothing to do with. Thanks, Joe. Great, Joe. Uh, Ludo writes in uh, and, and talks about how hard it is to pick just one favorite anarchist. So, so after going through Bookchin and, and Nino Vasco, uh, they settle on He Yin Zhen, a landmark feminist theorist, uh, uh, compounded the, the feminism struggle as a caste and class struggle. She, she wrote essays and papers on intersectional feminism 80 years before it, it was in vogue. Uh, in the West, and laid down plans for women's revenge for millennia of exploitation, a full devolution of power to communities, and demilitarization of peoples and nations. Yeah. So so that's uh, He Yin Zhen for you. Uh, definitely someone worth checking out. Thanks, Ludo. L writes in and uh, shares some uh, stories related to our deaf education episode. Yeah. Uh, Elle's mom uh, worked as an ASL interpreter uh, and one, was one of the few hearing students to ever attend Gallaudet University. Basically as like an exchange student. <laughs> Elle's mom worked the entire time through college as an interpreter there. Um, and though uh, Elle's mom never taught her sign language, the whole family uh, is very expressive in the way they use their hands, as I use my own hands right now. <laughs> uh, I do that a lot. I tend to hit our mic a lot. Yes. Yeah, it's bad. Uh, and it uh, turns out that the family uh, picked up uh, various signs uh, from mom since it was a habit you right, know, to right. sign. And they basically created their own like shorthand Mm -hmm. that uh it, it's sort of an inverse of the the linguistic process of people's home signs and regional signs yeah. going into early asl 
Mm-hmm. It's ASL becoming sort of a home sign for this family. Yes. Which we have our own version of. I mean, it's only like 10 signs, I feel like. But <laughs> yeah. we use them. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's one that I always do to let you know that I am listening and paying attention to you. We I'm, always I'm do I'm always the, doing like, the uh-huh. okay sign. If I'm listening but not looking at you. Uh-huh. Yes. You do thank you a lot to all people. T- I do. Like all the time at restaurants, you do thank you. Back in the olden days when we went to restaurants. <laughs> Yeah, we don't go now. I would always do that when I'm saying thank you to the server because it's loud in there. I don't know if they heard me or not. So I'm signing thank you at them at the same time I'm saying it just in case every time. You also, when we're in loud places, do uh, water. Yes. At me when you're like going to leave me for a little bit, but you want me to know that you're coming back. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very funny that I took sign, but you're the one that does these at me most often. Yeah. It's cute. Elle also uh, shares that a very interesting thing that never occurred to her until it was pointed out is um, how architecture intersects with deafness, which is something that my deaf culture class actually addressed for a little while. Yeah. Um, and so some of the examples that Elle gives, and it's really fascinating and interesting, is that uh, Gallaudet University is designed to have wider halls with more open architecture to allow for signing across spaces and um, for conversations to happen in hallways. Um, There's more ramps than stairs, so that way you don't have to really watch your step, but you can continue (laughs) to have conversations with people. Yeah, yeah. Um, And doors have more glass, like, built in, so that way, you know, you're not worried about a door, like, opening into you as you're you know, doing other things. I wish that was more universal. Yes, especially in our apartment building right now. Oh my god, I almost (laughs) get hit weekly by one of the doors. Uh, Another thing is, like, the wall color is painted to contrast more so, like, signs can be seen better. Mm -hmm, So, like, mm -hmm. picking a color that, like... That that would never be confused for any given skin tone. Yes. Yeah. So that way, and that's really for, like, so you can see from a farther distance. Mm Mm-hmm. And various things like that, which is, like, really awesome. And I loved what Elle wrote here is how it would absolutely make a world of difference to exist in a space designed for you rather than a space that merely tolerates you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which is like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That goes for so many. There's so many different little architectural aspects that can be adjusted to make an environment more welcoming to many people or even things like i'm thinking like animals like i remember do you remember that exhibit at the art institute with um from studio gang like they had a whole section Mm -hmm. that was on beautifully like designed window decals so birds would stop flying into the glass buildings yes and there was one that was constantly fluttering because they were like photoactive cells or something yeah yeah that was cool but it's like there's so many things, whether it's to benefit humans or animals, that can mm-hmm. be taken into account in architecture or design. But, you know, most people are lazy and don't. This is the thing that I find maddening about uh, accessibility in spaces, mm-hmm. which is that every aspect that you can improve also improves a space's usability for the able-bodied. Yes. Like, yes, this how- is very true. How nice is it to have 
the, those dips where the sidewalk goes down instead of a hard curb to the street. Uh-huh. Even if you're not a wheelchair user, you just have, like, rolling furniture. <laughs> like, yeah. How, the fact that the, the bus and the train have both LED signs for the deaf who can't hear the announcements and announcements for... Uh, the blind that can't read the signs, and both have saved me so many times. Well, let's remember, they should. They still don't all yet, and they are often not working, and when they aren't, it is hell yeah. to figure out where you are and when you need to pull the little thingy. Again, even for those of us who are both sighted and hearing. Yes. Yes. Or just like, think about like right now, mm-hmm. when we're in the middle of a freaking pandemic where you don't want to touch anything, and how like, Automatic doors. <laughs> Handicap yes. accessible doors. Yes. Please sense that I am here so I don't have to like touch something. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think it's a, a really interesting thing um that you brought up and I think it's something that like everyone like pay attention to your environment and what's around you and like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. question things. <laughs> I'll I'll also shared an episode suggestion, so thank you. It's thank a good you. one. Uh, and a picture of their cat, Lady Ezra, who is very cute. Very sweet. Very cute. And for some reason, upside down. What a silly kitty. What a silly kitty. So thank you very much. Thank you. Peter writes in, uh, and while not particularly versed in, in the, the who's who of anarchy, uh mentions a, a pair of historical figures that, that may be counted among their, their uh, uh, peers and allies. There's always Diogenes the Cynic of, of ancient Greece, uh, while we have this not entirely undeserved image of Greek philosophers as noble people standing around and, and saying what if at each other until one of them runs out of ideas. Diogenes was just running around naked, screaming at people about how things sucked. Quite frankly, that's what I want to do. I mean, it's warm enough. You could. <laughs> it's been very hot. And, you know, making fun of all those other philosophers and, and just telling Alexander the, the Great where he can shove it. Yeah. You know, fun stuff like that. Yeah. And the second is Peter Kropotkin, uh, uh, you know, author of Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution, the, the uh, beginning of the intellectual argument against social Darwinism. D- despite being born into wealth and power, I mean, he was a prince after all, he did what he could to, to dismantle class systems because he recognized there was inherent injustice. Mm-hmm. That he had all of he had by an accident of birth, not not by any divine right, and not by any he didn't earn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not how gametes work. <laughs> so thanks, Peter, and thank you to everybody who who gave us a letter. We we do enjoy reading them, and if you would like to send us one, those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail dot com. Uh, we like to get your show suggestions. Uh, like L, uh, any questions or stories you might like to share, uh, uh, corrections, of course, and the responses to our usual prompts. Yeah. Is there one for, for episode 105, dear? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, even so, those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, speaking of episode 105, we have a little bit of personal news. Yeah. We are moving house. Yes. Which takes time and effort and energy. Especially if you're doing it for the first time in a long time. 
do not be surprised if it takes more than two weeks for this next episode to hit you as well. Here's what to plan. If it comes out in two weeks... Hooray. Hooray! Or it might be a long time. It might be October before you hear an episode from us again. So just like, we'll be back. We'll be back. It's cool. Don't worry about us. We're cool. We're good. We're just dealing with a lot of cardboard. We're just in the process. Oh, excuse me. Corrugated paper. We're, in, we're just in the process of touching and evaluating every single object in our lives. Yes. It takes a while. If you're curious about any further updates we might have, the best place you can find that is on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Let's be honest, it's Twitter. But all of those are at History Honeys. I have a sleepy dog. <laughs> Yes, yes, you do. Uh, you can also give us a rating and review. Uh, you can tell a friend. And now it is time for us to sign off. So, you start that. I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with, with your honey. honey. You love me. I do. Yeah.